Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 10th of August as we record here as usual in the studio at Financial Times HQ. Today is the 126th anniversary of the founding of the RAC. So to mark the occasion, sort of, we're going to be discussing latest figures from auto parts maker TI Fluid Systems. Then we'll move on to our cover story this week. With quote-unquote risk-free rates having risen over the past year, we are discussing the different options available to income seekers. And we're also looking at some of the bigs, do's and don'ts for managing a smaller portfolio in our final segment whether you are a new investor with a small amount of money on your hands, whether you're someone tasked with managing a separate pot for a family member, or whether you're doing something else entirely that I haven't thought of, we will be discussing all those aspects from the point of view of smaller portfolios later in the show. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Mark Robinson, and in the studio, Val Cipriani. Hi, Val. Hi, Dan. And Dave Baxter. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Right. So we'll start Mark, with you, you wrote up the figures, the interim figures for TI Fluid Systems, the auto parts maker, uh, a few days ago. I suppose we should give readers just a, a brief, listeners rather, a brief uh, overview of the company. They, I think it's fed to say, have two divisions, don't they, doing respectively brake and fuel lines, so a bit more kind of EV focused, that one, and then fuel tank and delivery systems in, in the other half of the business, which is a bit more focused on, you know, traditional vehicles as per the uh, the fuel tank designation but but how did um how did the figures look to you it was a sort of a mixed bag really but they were broadly favorable i'd say uh, what stuck out to me was uh, there were the operational uh, efficiencies through the period under review there they've been helped along slightly by the fact that the chinese economy has reopened and so the they sell into a lot of original equipment manufacturers in, in the People's Republic. And they've just been going through um, their order backlogs and inventory restocking. The benefits of that will probably be perhaps even more apparent over the, the second half of the year as well. So that's favorable for uh, shareholders. Revenues grew at 15% and the company managed to boost the uh, adjusted trading margin as well by a fairly hefty 210 basis points. This was partly due to the success they've had in flooring back some of the inflationary cost pressures during the period. That led to a, a net benefit of 130 basis points. And the company themselves highlighted the challenges due to wage price inflation too. Uh, and we, we don't really know if that's going to moderate over the second half of the year, but I think they're, I think they're well prepared to to keep on clawing those those prices back, particularly as as demand from China is is going to ratchet up a bit now that uh, now that it's uh, the economy's re- reopened. Yeah, that uh, they have a I think a medium term target of uh, double digit margins. So this is clearly you know a step along the way there. Yeah. If we look at the, it's kind of the two halves of the business though, and that kind of split. Obviously, they're they're benefiting from. It looked to me, you know, fairly strong growth in the, um, you know, the FCS division, as it's called, which is the the fluid storage and the brake lines, that that side of things. As more, you know, EVs gain market penetration. Equally, though, the other side of the business has been holding up as well. I mean, do we expect kind of a big shift towards the former over the latter? 
I, I tend to think it will be more um, incremental. Uh, it, it rather depends on which area they're selling into as well. Adoption rates in China are certainly uh, more favorable than the United States of America, and the same applies for, for Europe too. I, I think the increased focus on, on the brake lines part of the business uh, was inevitable, as is the increased focus on uh, the Chinese market too, because uh, I was looking at some data from global data earlier on today, and uh, the forecast for glo global light vehicle output this year is about 5% higher than last year. But of course, the salient detail is that China is going to account for anywhere between 26 and 30% of total production. That stalled, that output stalled a little bit over the last 18 months or so for obvious reasons linked to their um, stringent uh, COVID-19 policies. And you look as well, um, the awards that have been given over to the company in terms of uh, BEV, battery electric vehicles, uh, over the period or on the lifetime basis, stand at about 640 million euros. And about 45% of that figure is related to uh, the, the Chinese market and their original equipment manufacturers too. So obviously they're selling into those, they get rebranded. And, you know, it's a, it's a sort of an entrenched business model too, which is highly favorable. So they're planning to open, or they confirm they're going to open up an e-mobility innovation center in China this year too. So, I mean, the, the sort of die is passed there really, but I, I think it will tend to be more incremental than a wholesale shift. Yeah, what, what are the, uh, you know, there's a big opportunity there clearly in China. I think, you know, the first half of this year it became became the world's biggest uh, car exporter as well because of its proficiency in uh, battery electric vehicles. But there are risks as well, presumably for, for a business, you know, uh, clearly it's entrenched as you say, but equally, you know, the, there are a lot of Chinese businesses involved in this kind of, uh, well, you know, in the supply chain as well. I don't know how many of them are competitors to uh, to TI Fluid Systems, but but when you're dealing with, uh, you know, a market like that, there's got to be some risks to you know, it's yeah. a high risk, high reward potentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's certain issues. I mean, there was a lot of talk this year about uh, China flooding Western markets with sort of cut price electric vehicles, and certainly the production costs are much lower uh, in the People's Republic. There, there are inherent risks dealing over there. I mean, you know, intellectual property theft uh, readily springs to mind there. Whether that's likely to affect TI is uh, is debatable or not. But, but but looking at what, what's happened over the last year as well, I should have mentioned that both segments recorded similar rates of hash profit growth during the period, although the um, fluid carrying systems uh, division, you know, they, they grew revenues at a much higher rate. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, extrapolating upon this. I tend to think that margins may improve in that corner of the business more rapidly over time uh, as well, because obviously, it's in it's a development phase, even though it's established in China. And you would imagine that uh, economies of scale will start to kick in uh, as we move forward. Yeah, I think uh, they addressed some of this on the analyst call, actually talking about the, those margins. It seems fair that, you know, that that is the volume game ultimately. Maybe to begin with, there's going to be lower volumes at the beginning and, uh, you know, as they yeah. start to penetrate that market a bit more. But I think the other interesting thing is just to go back to kind of the split between the two divisions, because it has been fairly stable for several years now. Maybe people a few years ago would have expected a bigger shift by now, yeah. but they do appear to be shifting some, you know, spending or at least some focus from, uh, you know, the uh, 
the I don't want to say legacy, but, you know, the traditional uh, division towards the FCS division now as well, which suggests that maybe they see a kind of inflection point approaching. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I mean, it, you know, the, these things aren't achieved overnight, are they? Because, I mean, there's still sort of fairly large volumes of internal combustion-powered vehicles in the Chinese market too. So, mm. But o- o- over time, you know, that, that summation will, will probably hold true, I would imagine. The other thing I think you flagged was the, you know, the capital allocation policy. I mean, they've, you know, the the shares we we should maybe have said at the top, you know, uh, rallied pretty strongly on these figures uh, last week, earlier this week, in fact, sorry, because of the way it set out, you know, what it plans to do in terms of uh, dividend, but also buyback. And and it's interesting that the company's doing this at the same time, you know, it does have a decent debt pile too. So I think you kind of flagged, flagged that as something to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we've seen there's been no shortage of uh, buybacks in this uh, current reporting season too. We've seen some fairly hefty ones, predictably, I guess, from uh, resource companies as well. But TI's joined the party on this. You, you know, you make the point as well that it does have a fair bit of cash on the books at the moment, but it's got a hefty debt pile. But management took the decision to review the, the capital allocation policy and came up with the aim of optimizing shareholder value. I mean, I've always been a little, a little bit circumspect with buybacks concerned because I, I sometimes wonder whether uh, decision-making re- related to it is skewed by incentives. I'm not, not suggesting for a moment this is the case uh, with TI Fluids, but, you know, re- uh, directors sort of compensation is, is sometimes linked to, uh, well, quite often linked to earnings multiples. And of course, if you, you reduce the number of shares over time, these will be bumped up uh, artificially in a sense. And another thing as well, you, it's, you know, 40 million euros isn't chicken feed for a company uh, of that size. And you kind of wonder where the funds weren't prioritized to develop the business further. In fact, I think the, the CapEx uh, guidance remained unchanged for this year too. And, um, you know, you always, you always wonder, hasn't management got anything better to do with the cash? In, in terms of the, the resource companies, you can understand that because it, it effectively a lot of those just stand, the main attractions for investors are the distributions. But with TI, it'd be interesting to drill down a little bit deeper in there. But uh, there we have it. That's just me being a cynic. Yeah, but I think they are, you know, in TI's case, they are also looking at acquisitions, bolt-on acquisitions, which... Again, they've spoken about for a while. They haven't really done any for a while, but yeah. it sounds like some more noises there. So, so you know, clearly they, they do have, you know, some cash on hand for that. You know, some, uh, um, uh, I think when you look at debt to EBITDA, it's not too bad at the moment, and they have paid down some some debt, some credit lines in the, the period. Yeah, if, if, if I was taking anything away from the results, it would be that it, the improvement in the underlying margin, because I think that's something they they have been targeting too. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the second half of the year, particularly if, as if, if I suspect that that the Chinese contribution will be large, even though there's some uh, existing doubts about growth rates in China. Yeah, and and on the buybacks point, you make you make a good point more more broadly there. I think you know there there are a lot of companies doing it this reporting season or this year in particular yeah a classic sign of uh, i suppose uh, management confidence i you know you want to do a buyback if you believe your share price is underpriced hopefully it doesn't prove a sign of overconfidence i mean ideally you would see i always think you know management buying in more themselves at the same time but i think quite often you see 
buybacks come as a substitute for management purposes sometimes, don't they? But um, management yeah. pur- purchases, that is. Anyway, I mean, this is this is an endless debate. This one and buybacks, mm. you know. Yeah, we could spend the rest of the show discussing them, but we won't. We will move on now to our cover story this week, which is again looking at uh, you know payments to shareholders in many ways, looking at income, income investing. And Dave, you wrote the piece and very much in the context of the fact that, as we said at the top, you know, risk-free rates, bond yields have risen considerably, uh, as you'd expect, given what's happened to base rates over the past 18 months. So there are now, you know, more options out there for income investors. And uh, can you say a bit more about, I suppose, how you approach this conundrum, if you want to call it that, of, you know, where to look for for income? Yeah, I mean, it could be a conundrum, could be an opportunity, depending how you look at it. Um, I suppose if you if you looked back maybe 18 months ago, bond yields were incredibly low, very different times, of course. And if you're an income investor, you're probably going to rely on things like equities, equity income funds, and then also those <clears throat> what we like to call alternative assets, your uh, you know infrastructure and so on. Um, but what's happened with bond yields completely resets the kind of income landscape because finally you look at as you mentioned the so-called risk-free rate what you get from something like a, a UK government bond you know something you wouldn't expect to kind of a, a government's default on you're getting you know more than four percent yield now so it's looking at it I suppose on a positive note it's simply very easy to get kind of seemingly safe yields and that means that it's kind of easier to construct an income portfolio but I suppose the conundrum is where do you stick your money? How much do you kind of pile into bonds? And, you know, what does that mean for your your overall investments? So we've certainly seen this year, when you look at the statistics, you know, a decent amount of money coming out of equity funds going into bond funds, yeah. uh, which, you know, there, there is that attraction there, as you outlined. Equally, that is, you know, for people with existing portfolios, that is only ever going to be piecemeal because I don't think, you know, we're not suggesting, I don't think anyone is going to be suggesting, you know, overhauling an entire portfolio at once in order to take advantage of bonds. Maybe it's more saying at the margin or with new money or something like that. I think that's it. Yeah, there, there are a couple of considerations. I mean, one is you, you mentioned, I suppose, kind of new money versus might call it old money. You know, you don't really want to be selling out of something that is still quite battered after last year. So, for example, if you look at, I mentioned the things like kind of infrastructure, trusts and so on, those will still be kind of nursing some losses. So you don't want to crystallise those losses in order to jump into these very attractive bonds or, or bond funds. I suppose an interesting kind of point is that you, you can kind of use bonds on the side and then you can, uh, that allows you to kind of let the rest of your portfolio work in a sort of more considered and kind of longer term fashion. You know, your equities can gradually kind of compound and build up that income and so on. Yeah, I mean, that is still a crucial point, isn't it? Which we would be, it would be remiss of us not to mention that, you know, bonds, you know, have the uh, the safety in many cases and, you know, good yields now, but equities offer something different insofar as they offer the prospect of dividend growth, you know, i.e. that coupon increasing, the prospect of capital growth, of course, as well, which isn't always there with, with bonds, although we did see that, you know, over the past uh, past decade, but maybe not so much now. Uh, so, yeah, so, so that allows the other part of the portfolio to work harder, as you say. I suppose the other question is, you know, you've got some people commenting on this in the feature about, you know, the the split, you know, to put it in very basic terms, again, mm. if you were maybe you know, starting out now from an income perspective from scratch, you know, the split between equities and bonds, the traditional, I suppose, 60-40 portfolio for certain, I mean, this is always for certain people, you know, obviously, 
if you're you know early on in your investing life, it would make more sense to have assets that can grow more over the long term. But the 60-40 thing is quite a enduring concept, but maybe that's shifting now as well in terms of 60% equities, 40% bonds might be a bit different now. Yeah, I think that that kind of applied to, and this is again a very subjective term, but the idea of the balanced investor who wants some growth and then some protection and so on. But one interesting kind of figure or proportion that was cited by one person I spoke to for the article was that perhaps if you were the 60-40 advocate in the past, you should now be 60-40, but the other way around. So you have 60 in bonds and 14 equities, which I think you could argue is pretty punchy. And that also may be kind of a, as you mentioned, a new money thing or a kind of relatively short term thing. And you may want to kind of adjust your portfolio back over time. But I think it does kind of um, that level of kind of bullishness and bonds illustrates how kind of appealing the opportunity is at the minute and just how much easier it is making life for, for an income investor. I think that as well, wasn't it? It was from the point of view of a global investor where, you know, in a lot of markets, the yield available on those markets isn't that high, you know, from equities. In the UK, at least, you can still get some pretty good dividend yields. The question being perhaps, you know, how uh, sustainable some of those yields are. When we look at those, you know, I suppose kind of rules of thumb for dividend yield against risk-free rates, do those kind of things still apply? There's a couple of points mentioned in the piece with regard to some old rules of thumb, which maybe don't apply now. Maybe they do. Who knows? Yeah. One of the really interesting old rules of thumb that I must admit I was totally unaware of because I suppose it's not been relevant for 10 years or so, but there, there used to be this idea that if you're looking at, say, a, a yield on a, a UK equity or something like that, then the moment it exceeds the so-called risk-free rate, so what you get on maybe a 10-year UK gilt, that's when you start to think, is this a red flag? Is it kind of too high? And is it unsustainable? So I, I guess, as you say, it's kind of, it'll be interesting to see how that rule holds up. But of course, also, there is the kind of so-called equity risk premium. So you will be expecting something more for kind of taking on that volatility and risk associated with, you know, buying shares or buying equity funds. Yeah. I mean, to me, that original risk right now, you know, the 10-year gilt's at about 4.4%. So mm. to say anything above that on equities is too good to be true. It seems incredibly overcautious, which I feel confident in saying, because uh, unless every single company ever yielding more than that level cuts their dividend, it won't come back to haunt me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you, you do, you know, as you say, need more compensation for, for riskier assets. But we, we talk about, in fact, you know, some of the FTSE 100 companies in the piece, you know, there's plenty now lead, which are yielding more than... 8%, which is a kind of level, you know, certainly in the 9 and 10% out there when you look at and you, you mm. do start to, to wonder. But that is when the, you know, the stock analysis and the company specific research comes into its own, of course, rather than just taking these things as a whole. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about in the piece is that you touch on the idea of natural income, which, you know, for a lot of dividend investors is, is a big thing. But some of the conversations there might be changing now as well. Yeah, so if you think back to, say, I feel like this was particularly prominent in 2020, there's this big idea that you should be a total return investor rather than going for kind of, you know, as you say, natural income and yield, because you're, if you're looking for natural income, people argue that you're being pushed into kind of X growth or very cyclical sectors you don't want. So notably in the UK, you're energy majors and so on. We, we should say that I suppose the, the natural income is when you, you know, you don't or try not to touch capital at all. And you just survive purely yep. off the, you know, dividends, which might be a natural thing to think about when you think of an income investor. But 
it's not always that easy. Yeah, yeah. So the, the alternative approach was you the total return approach. So you perhaps get maybe some income, but also some capital growth. And what you do is you sell down your assets and use that to kind of fund your income. But I suppose uh, that was quite a convincing argument, the total return side, back when, you know, bond yields and so on were quite low. But now things have shifted. Natural income seems a lot more sustainable. It probably seems easier to get something like, say, 4% natural income. And um, yeah, the argument has shifted. Also, I suppose one argument against total return might be that it does invite an element of kind of market timing. Yeah, uh, you know, with the advantage of the natural income on that side, isn't it, is, you know, you get your quarterly or your interim dividends, you get them at set times, you don't need to sell down at what might prove to be an inopportune time, that yeah. kind of thing. As I say, that is our cover story this week. So do look out for that. But let's let's do a 180 now. You know, income investing is one thing. Growth investing is something entirely different. And when we're looking at smaller portfolios, as we are doing now in the piece written by Yuval, quite often these are going to be starter portfolios or people, you know, just setting out on their investment journey, which would imply, therefore, they have a very long-term time horizon. But whatever reason, you know, whatever uh, time horizon and motivation they have in mind, there are some, you know, tips and, and rules, if you want to go that far, that can make it easier to get started. Yeah, I think one of the key things is, you know, when you start at the beginning, uh, you know, you can, you know, you're, you're maybe not always sure about what you want to do with the portfolio. And some people who might also be expert investors, but they might kind of also be running a smaller portfolio on the side. They might sort of think, OK, well, let's get this started and see where it goes a little bit. But that's not necessarily maybe the, the best approach because... So even if the portfolio is small and it will take you a bit of time to kind of like research it and get it going. And at the beginning, the obviously the returns won't be that much. Uh, so they will not compensate for that uh, effort you put in at the beginning. As the portfolio grows, then you will get their, their rewards eventually. So there is... I suppose a bit of a danger of being cavalier because the sum is relatively small and, you know, it's okay to keep things quite simple at the beginning, but it sort of doesn't mean you can sort of forget of the basic principles of investing. I think that's that's the sort of main thing. So, you know, speaking to some people, I think that the main mistakes they were seeing from people managing small portfolios were not um, thinking as much about asset allocation so, you know, maybe you have a very kind of long-term perspective and in that case, just 100% equity is probably fine. But if that's not the case, you still want to think about, you know, like protecting on the downside on the downside, and sort of just kind of like diversifying the portfolio. So, yeah, I think the key principle there is kind of you want to find the balance between the effort you put in uh, and still having a sort of diversified portfolio that works for you. Yeah. In some ways, I was completely wrong to draw the contrast between income investing and growth in this context, because you're right, you know, that, you know, that diversification is important depending on the time horizon. And with a small portfolio, you know, big falls can uh, obviously be much more damaging, given the amount you have in to start. Cost, obviously, on a related note, is very important too. More so for a small portfolio, you might say, than for, than for any others, really. 
Yeah, because, yeah, that's basically because of fixed fees. Uh, so, you know, when you have like percentage based fees, this obviously same impact to whatever the size of the portfolio, but when you have uh, fixed ones, they will impact a small portfolio disproportionately. And that's usually tends to be um, trading fees mm. uh, on, you know, single companies' shares, and ETFs, and investment trusts, just because that's the way platforms t- tend to charge. And so basically that means that if you have that kind of portfolio, your potential mistakes or even just like changing your mind or trying to, you know, time a call in some way, it gets proportionally much more expensive. And so you kind of need to think ahead a little bit and kind of get into that mindset that if you want to make a change to your portfolio, it's going to potentially make quite a big dent into your returns. Because, I mean, it obviously depends on the platforms, but um, some platforms do have pretty pricey trading fees. So that means, you know, you have a 10K portfolio, you do maybe four trades a year, and that's already half a percentage point of your portfolio gone just because of those four trades. So it kind of adds up very quickly. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the key structural things, I think, that people probably don't realize is that if you're buying, as you say, ETFs, shares, investment trusts on platforms, you should be aware that certainly on the major platforms, there are you know alternatives available that can solve this problem. But on those major platforms, you have trading fees that, as you say, can eat into uh, the returns. Whereas with an open-ended fund, most of uh, the big platforms now don't charge you to buy and sell those funds. So that is a key difference when you, you know, if you have a particularly small portfolio. Yeah. And also there's this idea, which is tends to be true in general that uh, funds are more expensive to kind of hold on most platforms. And that is true if you have a bigger portfolio or a medium-sized portfolio, uh, because with shares, usually the platform fee is capped to a certain point. Mm. But then obviously, if your portfolio is not big enough to reach the cap anyway, holding funds or holding shares or trusts will not really make a difference in terms of the um, platform fee either. Yeah, um, in terms so, of yeah. Those, yeah, those annual costs. Uh, yeah. What about, um, you know, the platforms in general? We'll come back to the, the kind of diversification asset allocation in a minute, but since we're on the subject of platforms, you know, their fees do differ to varying degrees. We go through all this in the piece. We have some, you know, good information and, and tables in there, as you'd expect. But but what kind of things should, other things should people watch for in terms of platform charges, what they should be looking for? Maybe I'm thinking particularly here in terms of fixed fees, which we mentioned as well to begin with. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, so as we were saying, the trading fees, it's the main thing. So if you want kind of like the freedom to trade a bit more often and you're not, you know, maybe you're a quite expert investor or you're not very worried about having a super top quality service or you don't need funds, at that point you can maybe have a look at the kind of like trading only platforms, uh, which compared to the, you know, the mainstream ones. They sort of take more the approach where trading is either free or quite cheap. And then, you know, you get less kind of choice of funds, for example. Uh, so that's that's one of the things you can do. And then more in general, you kind of want to um, have a look at, you know, any other fixed fees you might have. Because there is a couple of, pl- of platforms that actually do charge fixed fees, uh, not just on trading, but just in terms of platform costs. And there are obviously, I mean, the, the obvious one is Interactive Investor, uh, whose pitch was always from the beginning, we're going to charge you with like a fixed fee so you know what you will pay and then obviously you get rewarded as your portfolio grows because it gets less and less expensive very quickly 
so you know that's that's certainly one thing to think about that those kind of platforms get very cheap when your portfolio is big and are a bit more pricey at the beginning yeah uh, i think i i on that note well i know that they are changing their prices slightly aren't they uh next month Albeit that doesn't really offset the point you make about fixed fees, you know, that that is still a more expensive option for a starter investor or someone with a small portfolio. But let's turn to the, I suppose, the asset allocation again. One question that comes up a lot, you know, whether you've got a small portfolio or otherwise is, you know, balancing between the need to diversify and having too many holdings. You know, how does that kind of uh, manifest play out with small portfolios in particular? Yeah, it's very it's very tricky, isn't it? I think especially if you use like you're used to investing in companies, then diversifying adequately with a small sum gets gets a bit complicated. So I think in general, you know, you want to think about the usual things. So you want to diversify from well an asset point of view back to the point on asset allocation that we made at the beginning, and then geography and sectors. And then the way, let's say the easier way to do this rather than with companies is with using either funds or ETFs or investment trusts. And then potentially, so you know, you're, you're trying to basically balance not having too many holdings and also don't, not making it too pricey or too difficult to keep track of because, again, the portfolio is small. So it might be worth, you know, going passive for a chunk of the portfolio because then, you know, you re- both reduce the costs, but also you kind of like have less risk on underperforming the market because you're tracking it. Um, so that's also a point. And then if you want to diversify, for example, within alternatives or with investment trusts, you want, to, well, to be fair with funds as well, you want to check exactly what those funds are holding because, uh, you know, you might think you have two holdings that are very different and you're getting like different exposure to the to different things. But uh, actually, you might not be doing that. You might be having two funds that bet on the same sectors or companies. I know this is a point that Dave uh, often makes about, you know, US funds and global funds, for for example, you know, the fact that a lot of those global funds are, you know, majority US shares anyway, so you can easily double up that way, for example. On which note, I mean, the the other aspect to, to talk about with, with diversification and, and with the kind of funds you, you own and how many funds you own is there are, you know, you can, if you're starting out as well, in some ways, just put it all in one in one fund, whether that be, you I know, mean, there are a couple of different ways of doing that, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can just go f- with a global tracker and just yeah. be done with it. And that's the easy way. Or you can go with like a multi-asset fund or a fund of funds with the sort of caveat that uh, it can get a bit more expensive. So, you know, you've got to think about whether that's worth it for you. And then I think one thing we mentioned in the piece, which is basically what I was saying, is that if you do go active, you don't want to hold just one fund because then the risk of underperformance you're exposed to is quite is quite high because if that fund doesn't go right, then the whole portfolio is impacted. Yeah, yeah. I think that the... The lesson from you know recent history as well with with people starting out certainly with investing and they probably don't have a portfolio but they might have you know some some risky assets or some cryptocurrencies or something is that you know if you're if you're betting it all on one particular thing then it can go very wrong very quickly so there's a lot of information in the piece uh, you know approaching it from all different kinds of angles you know whatever your uh, the reason you're starting this small portfolio that's in the magazine this week it's also online so do have a look out for that. We've run out of time, though, today, unfortunately. So thank you very much to Val, to Dave, and to Mark, and to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market show. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.